0: We interrupt our program to bring you this important message.
1: Well, good morning. Today is Tuesday, June 27th, and my name is Scott Shera. I am Grace's dad. And I have come to believe that one of the reasons God allowed Grace to go home early was to wake me up. And this podcast is called Deprogramming with Grace's Dad because of that fact. The thing thing that I've woken up more than anything else to is how programmed I was to believe the lies that my teachers, my parents, unknowingly for the most part told me. And now that I'm waking up, I have a responsibility that I've never had before. And so this podcast is one of the reasons um, that I think uh, God took grace was that we can uh, all utilize our gifts and some doing something like this to wake other people up. So I always start with something neat about Grace, and this isn't going to be so neat, other than the first picture. So, uh, Don, can you bring in Grace's baby picture first? Uh, you know, so you can tell, obviously, she was special right from the beginning. Uh, the next pictures I'm going to bring in are a sequence of pictures from Grace's last week on this earth, and uh, they're tough to look at for me because I remember it very well. It was like it was yesterday. So go ahead with the first picture don of grace getting into the ambulance i want to set these situations up because when uh, danielle tells her story today things happen you don't realize how they're happening so this is grace uh, in the ambulance, I rode in the ambulance with her, how did this even happen? Well, we had gone to urgent care because her oxygen saturation had dropped to 88%. And you can see she has one of these foolish face diapers on because that's what they made us do. And I didn't say no. And that's the starting point. Once you're awake, you have a responsibility to say no. Which, which hill should you die on? And the answer to that question is every single one of them that is satanic, and these masks were satanic, and we should have said no all the way. So what happened in the urgent care is they suggested Grace needs to go to the emergency room because she had a high D-dimer, and I foolishly agreed with that. I wrote in the ambulance with her. You can see obviously she's fine. Uh, she's giving the thumbs up. She was just like she always is other than she had a bad cold. All right, so this is October 6th of 2021. Let's go to the next Picture done. All right. So this is Grace's first day in the hospital, October 7th. Obviously, you can see she's still fine and she continued to be fine. Here she's only on a regular cannula, which if they would have kept her on a regular cannula and a steroid, Grace would be alive today. But instead, what happened is we go to the next slide. So this is October 8th. This is Grace's second day in the hospital. They had convinced me that she needed to go on a BiPAP, but they really didn't talk about it. There was no informed consent whatsoever. They had set this stage that oxygen is the primary thing that's necessary. And of course, oxygen is still needed to stay alive. Last time I checked, but not at the level where she needed a BiPAP. Now that I've studied the records and talked with multiple experts, I see that the BiPAP was a tool that was used to create fear. So again, you see Grace is giving the thumbs up. She's fine. That morning, interestingly, the pulmonologist came in and said, you need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I denied that request. They asked us four more times to put Grace for a pre-authorization. never that she needed to to need one other than this morning on the eighth, he said in the next two hours. I challenged thankfully and said, what is that based on? And he said, we did a blood gas last night and it shows that she needs to be on uh, a ventilator. So I asked some questions. I said, I want the blood gas redrawn because I don't think your numbers are accurate. They did, they followed my request and Grace was fine. And you know, you look at her, you could see she's fine. It was ridiculous, Uh, but that pressure, they kept that pressure up in fact, What happened later on this day was the um, hospitalist came in and said, Scott, isn't a 20% chance better than no chance? So he was framing that Grace is going to die, which is ridiculous. So the 20% chance, he was playing off the pulmonologist when I asked him about what is the prognosis if Grace goes on a ventilator. And he told me she only has a 20% chance of walking out alive. So at that point, I mean, the light bulb goes off. My ventilator paradigm at that point was set by President Trump when he implemented the War Powers Act, and I just thought ventilators are a tool in the tool chest. Well, now I started researching ventilators live in the hospital, and I realized that the doctor told me a partial truth, but then the the hospitalist, who's the salesperson, comes in and tries to frame it like Grace is going to die, and this 20% lifeline is what you need to do. Thankfully, we rejected that situation all the way through all right so we're going to move on to the outline today i'm going to have don bring the three guests in and i have two ladies who've been invested in the fight against evil and one who's a victim of the evil so we've got gail mccray angela hall and danielle kelly gail's an rn angela's a dentist and danielle is a is a victim, but she survived. She survived the hospitals trying to kill her. And I'm saying hospitals with an S because when she tells her story, you'll hear that. So I'm going to have each of them briefly introduce themselves, and then we'll dive into uh, the game plan for today. So Gail, why don't you go first?
2: Thanks for having us here today, Scott. What you're doing is wonderful. And If more people had the courage to come and do it, I think we would see good outcomes coming through. So that's my call to everyone watching today. My name is uh, Gail McCray. Uh, I'm a nurse in RNBSN. I uh, spent 10 years working in acute care. Um, I've worked in ICU, telemetry, med surge, labor and delivery. Uh, I, I was a nurse on the COVID floors. I completed a double master's nurse practitioner to become a primary care provider. Uh, the school wouldn't allow me to complete my 700 clinical hours to get the um, degree because I was refusing to take these uh, COVID shots. So that degree was taken away from me at the last minute. Uh, so that's uh, that's my background in a nutshell. Uh, as standing up to, what I witnessed, I was uh, working for Kaiser Permanente in the Bay Area of California, uh, which is one of the largest uh, medical care providers on the West Coast. We have a full scope of care. So uh, we have you know, hospitals, uh, primary care providers, clinics, uh, labs, pharmacies, the whole nine yards. And so it was a very interesting place. Uh, in addition to that, we do uh, Kaiser Permanente, uh, contributes research to the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is one of the largest research organizations in the country. Uh, So we also uh, are constantly seeing seeing things occur around us that are being uh, charted and documented uh, in order to submit evidence uh, to create protocols. So uh, there are many things that I noticed from uh, the first moment of the COVID lockdowns uh, that signaled to me that there was a misalignment in what we were being told and what was actually happening in the hospital setting, uh, which which helped give me the courage to uh, to do the right thing when the time came. So I'm here today to uh, try and encourage other people to recognize what's happening instead of turning away from the truth so that we can start addressing, the medical murder that's occurring. So thanks for
1: standing. Yeah, it's good to have you here. What are all those letters behind your name again? Give me all those.
2: So uh, the RN is the license. Uh, the BSN indicates that I have a bachelor's in science in nursing, and the double nurse practitioner that I was supposed to get was a a CNM and women's health nurse practitioner. So that would have been uh, for delivering babies and taking care of women.
1: So my letters are are DAD and I also have BS, but the BS stands for something else. All right. So we'll let that go right now. Angela, go ahead.
3: Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me. So I'm a a general dentist and I, um, Work for the uh, our local uh, VA hospital serving veterans. Um, I just have to say a little disclaimer. I do not speak on behalf of the VA. Um, I just am here to tell my story. Um, but I've been at or I was at the VA for about 13 years. Uh, have a very successful track record there, no disciplinary action. Um, and then of course, um, COVID hit and I, I worked through the height of the pandemic with no uh, no shot, of course. Then in July of 2021, the VA system mandated the vaccine, which I filed a religious and medical exemption for because I do have an underlying medical um, condition. Um, and, and I guess that I, I was just kind of playing the game I, I on a, a moral level did not want to take it. But um, anyway, um, so I did not take the vaccine um, or the, the shot. Um, and that was, again, it was mandated in July of 2021. Then, of course, the um, the executive order came through in September of, of 2021. Um, but I, I stood my ground and, and did not take the shot. And I'm still employed there today. I never missed a day of work. But um, it was uh, a battle that I had to go through for from July of 2021. 2021 until they finally actually um, issued a memo on september 9th of 2022 saying that they're just going to kind of let us be for now we do not have to take the jab um but i'm here because i just want to encourage other healthcare providers to 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 stand up for their medical freedoms and i was taught such a valuable lesson serving the veterans for the last 13 some odd years they gave so much of their lives to stand up for our freedoms this was the least i could do um, to stand up for the freedoms that i felt were being stripped from us uh faster than than we could even keep up with
1: well that's fantastic Uh, you know this morning i just talked with uh, a mom and she was telling me about her daughter, who was a nurse and said that, you know, basically you don't understand, Scott, she's got to follow the orders. And I said, believe me, I understand. And she doesn't have to follow the orders because she can quit. And mm-hmm. anybody that follows orders to kill somebody and uses the excuse of following orders is going to be held to account. If not in this lifetime in god's timeline for sure and i have no tolerance for that whatsoever you know these nurses who followed orders are why my daughter grace is not here anymore because the nurse in grace's case had 14 years of icu experience so she knew better and you know, we're going to drill things down as we get into danielle's story but before we do the story danielle tell a little bit about yourself
4: <laughs> hi my name is danielle nice to meet you guys i am from los angeles um I feel like Wilson in that show, like hiding behind the fence with the logo. <laughs> I'm like, should I speed <laughs> Don, up?
1: Don is so sharp. You see what he just did? He automatically okay. just removed
5: it. Thank you.
4: I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. I don't know why. Um, thank you, Don. Um, thank you, Scott. So um, I am a super athlete um, and My stepfather was a four-time Olympian. He's actually ranked 24th in US history to this day in the decathlon. My mother was an elite pole vaulter. I began lifting weights when I was, I think, 15 and running track with my family when I was four. Um, And so I was diagnosed with diabetes when I was 13 and I've been on insulin therapy for 26 years, and I held up great um, because of my intense athletic background. Um, I've done a lot of yoga teacher trainings. I've been doing hot yoga for almost 20 years, which when you do any kind of activity in a heat fasted, it puts your body in a regenerative state called AMP kinase. So it does not have to be Bikram yoga, which really was designed for the double-jointed. Your organs aren't even really supposed to go into those movements. (laughs) And I am double-jointed. So, um, (laughs) yeah, so it works for me as a type 1 diabetic. But it took a lot of years and a lot of doctors to learn this, by the way. It's not something that most people know, and it's not easy to Google either. So I got COVID direct exposure from somebody like in physical close proximity um actually it was a a, a, a someone who tried to kiss me at the gym and i was like no
3: yeah.
4: when i got COVID, Didn't i don't want to cross over
1: me. into your story yet then no no oh, okay so,
4: sorry because we're going to do
1: uh, sorry, that separate sorry. so we can all kind of oh
4: sorry okay That's thank okay. you for stopping me we'll get into the story later
1: yes Okay. all right so it's the short version is you are physically fit you know out of all the people who should have survived covid you should be right at the top right
4: yes yes yeah what i was getting to is is since then i'm not able to do any of those things and it's a lot has changed
1: yeah And we'll, we're going to walk through that because yeah. i want us to all yes. learn from the story yes all right so I'm, <laughs> I'm calling today's program how to avoid the trap of the medical industrial complex last week i had mr griffin on we did something different because he fielded audience questions today we're going to do something different again today we're going to have danielle walk through her entire COVID experience and then gail angela and i will comment as she tells the horrific story and i'm hoping that everybody will gain some um, tidbits to navigate the new health care paradigm so how new is this healthcare paradigm? I'm gonna have Don play an old, or not an old clip, but from Plandemic 2, a clip that shows how far back this goes. And then we're gonna jump into how what's going on today just to show how nefarious it is, because this has been going on a long time. COVID exposed the nightmare, but it's been going on for way longer than COVID. So go ahead and play the Plandemic 2 clip, Don.
0: Around the same time that John D. Rockefeller seized U.S. media, he also hijacked U.S. medicine. When it was discovered that drugs could be produced from petroleum, America's top oil mogul ordered his army of propagandists to invert reality accordingly. Medicines used for thousands of years were suddenly classified as alternative, while the new, petroleum-based, highly addictive, and patentable drugs were declared the gold standard. After buying the German pharmaceutical company that manufactured chemicals of war for Adolf Hitler, Rockefeller leveraged his political influence by pressing Congress to declare natural healing modalities, unscientific quackery. Rockefeller then took control of the American Medical Association and began offering massive grants to top medical schools, under the mandate that only his approved curriculum be taught. Any mention of the healing powers of herbs, plants, and diet was erased from most medical textbooks. Doctors and professors who objected to Rockefeller's plan were crucified by the media, removed from the AMA, and stripped of their license to teach and practice medicine. Those who dared to speak out were arrested and jailed. When evidence began to emerge that petroleum-based medicines were causing cancer, Mr. Rockefeller founded the American Cancer Society through which he suppressed that information. John D. Rockefeller is duly credited as the founder of the pharmaceutical industry and the reason that medical error is currently the third leading cause of death in America. This is not an indictment against doctors. More than anyone, they are under the stranglehold of the single largest lobbying power in Washington. Every year, the pharmaceutical industry spends at least twice the amount as Big oil to influence laws, policies, and public perception. Thanks to Mr. Rockefeller, the architect of American monopolies. No industry has more power over our lives than big pharma.
1: So we start with God's way, God's natural plan to heal our body. There's a stake in the ground driven in by the Rockefellers in the early 1900s and then we see the second law of thermodynamics really take off. And where is it at today? This will shock you. This is uh, from Monday's news. It just came out on Monday. So Don, can you just bring up that news clip? I'm gonna see if I can read the quote from it from what you bring up. All right, can you scroll down just a little bit? So first of all, let's just look at the title. Sorry, Don. So the title, this is in Monday's news, Doctors Won't Help Patients Kill themselves. So, state enlist nurses. So, this is the state of Hawaii. Let's scroll down. I'm going to share with you what one of the Hawaii senators said a little bit further, Don. All right, right there. Senator Joy San uh, Bueno Ventura said that the new law was necessary because there aren't enough doctors willing to help kill their patients. So, they added nurses with the uh, APRN designation. Now they can also kill their patients. And this is so sick. I mean, I've, I've seen this in the research I've been doing. I tied it back to Obamacare. Section 1553 of Obamacare created the license to kill. Then all these training documents and state laws were put in place. Well, here it's just blatant right in the headline. There isn't enough doctors willing to kill patients. So now we have to add nurses to the list. And this is, this is so evil, you you can't make it up. All right. So that's our background. We've got God's way, the Rockefellers drove the stake in the ground, which is the second law of thermodynamics started it on fire. And now we're at today where we have death panels, we have the medical assistance in dying, assisted suicide, uh, euthanasia, like what took grace out, all of those things. So it is no surprise that when you hear Danielle's experience, uh, that it, it even happened, but it's, it's because this has been set up for many, many, many decades. So Danielle, as you start talking about your story, I want all three of us, so uh, Gail, Angela, and myself, I want us to look through the lens of what's wrong with our system and why is this happening. And so I'll stop you momentarily when, when it seems logical, and then all three of us will comment so that we can see what went wrong and how can we stop this. So, Danielle, the floor is yours.
4: So, I got COVID um, December, I'm sorry, the very first week of January 2021. And I had just had ankle surgery about a week and a half prior, December 19th, so maybe a little longer. Um, And my ankle went septic within a few hours, and my mom rushed me to the Encino emergency room. And Scott, I had sent you a photo of my ankle. I, I don't know if you're going to use it or not, if you want to or not. But they were well aware that I had um, been a type 1 diabetic since age 13. And they knew that I was what's called a brittle. Um, so
1: they is the hospital that you went hospital. to? Yes. So this hospital you've gone to before?
4: I've been there before. And that same treating ER doc has treated me before. I remember right. it, like it was yesterday, just like
1: yeah. So let's just walk through the check-in process. I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss this because the check-in process. What happens is they make you sign this stupid little screen with the fake pen. Did that happen?
4: Well, this was in Zeno Hospital, so you're still using pieces of paper on a clipboard and a pen. <laughs> but um, they did have a COVID waiver. Yeah.
1: It's critical that anytime there's an opportunity to sign something that you stop. You've got to read what you're signing.
4: Oh, yeah. This is
1: not the world we live in is that we should have a distrust. We should have had it before. But if you're not awake to this now, you're a fool. We should have a complete distrust for anybody in the medical system until they've shown that they can be trusted. And there's some bright light tests you can ask. What do you think about the jab? What do well, you think about ivermectin? You know, you can ask some very innocent questions, and you can find out very quickly if there's somebody that is uh, following the the lead of the government. They've been bought, or they're independent. All right, keep going, Daniel.
4: Yeah. So, and I did not um, get the vaccine. I was I was too worried about. Well, I don't need to get into why. I was just afraid with a pre-existing condition how it would affect me as a type one diabetic. Um,
1: do you does Angela or Gail? Do you have any comments about vaccines in general outside of just this jab? Which we know this jab was never a vaccine. That's public record at this point with the Brook Jackson case. But do you have comments about vaccines in general?
3: Angela, I guess speaking, yeah. I guess just speaking from a, an education standpoint, um, I went to the University of Michigan School of Dentistry and, and during our pharmacology program, there was a tremendous, um, in, you know, I'm a dentist, I'm a medical provider, but again, I, I never administered vaccines. There was a, a lot of focus on the safety of vaccines. Um, looking back on it, it was almost like a brainwashing. You know, there's never any adverse effects to vaccines. If somebody says they get sick after a vaccine, it's just, it's just, um, circumstance it it wasn't a cause and effect so just from my experience education wise tremendous pressure as a dentist during my pharmacology training to push vaccines essentially
2: i would echo that and i would also add uh not only did we get so little training on vaccines and all we were told was that they were safe and effective and that anybody who tried to dispute that, it was really like in training, we were already setting ourselves up to stereotype uh, colleagues and patients who questioned. Uh, It was basically just accepted that if anyone questioned the safety and efficacy of vaccines, they were to be labeled as you know, uneducated conspiracy theorists. Uh, on a on a professional level, in, in my experience as a nurse, uh, I myself personally, uh, I received the flu shot my first two years as a nurse, and both times I got sick uh, within about four days of taking that shot, and it It was interesting. I didn't really look into it too much after that at that time. Uh, I just decided not to take it anymore because I felt that it was harming me. Uh, and then in my in my career, I one of my colleagues uh, actually developed a severe autoimmune uh, reaction to the flu shot and almost died after receiving one. Uh, and that that uh, thankfully was around the time when I started having children. so, uh, I ended up very deeply delving into vaccines before Covid, and uh, was able to see that, in fact, there were there were uh, holes in uh, the messaging between the messaging that we were receiving and uh, the evidence and the the research that actually existed. So in that sense, i I feel uh, lucky and privileged that I was able to come to those realizations before. Uh, the COVID vaccine was ever released. And uh, in December of 2020, uh, I, I listened to an interview by Dr. Lee Merrick, uh, where, where she directed us to the animal studies on mRNA shots. And uh, I was able to go and see for myself that, in fact, there was a lot of very scary outcomes with those shots, uh, even uh, in the in the animal trials, which made... That, that was, and, and in addition to that, I had uh, I had gotten COVID in 2020, November of 2020, and I had had an easy recovery and I'd had my blood tested for antibodies and I had robust natural immunity. And this was something that I just feel is so outrageous that, you know, we've been studying natural immunity and vaccines for hundreds of years and we've always used a vaccine to try and emulate natural immunity and yet during this pandemic it's just is this like many other things like the hospital protocols you know we just threw it out the baby out with the bathwater and ignored you know like the efficacy of masks like the efficacy of natural immunity like uh, like like having a, a, um, a, a support system at the bedside of a scared patient. You know, these are all things that we know and they just got thrown out the window during covid
1: yeah unfortunately it was you know as i've, I've been doing research it was way before covid but covid it certainly exposed it that anybody can see it now if you if you can't see it you're blind you know the i don't know if either of you have watched the joe rogan interview with rfk junior but or not watch but listen to it, You know he really drills this down there's you know we have created a vaccine culture that attempts to replace god and that's the fundamental problem and it has been programmed into as you said angela into the the whole system so you know these people i i heard dr pierre corey testify uh, in front of the wisconsin legislature and he said you know it, it there's whole medical practices that the pediatrician, it's just vaccinate, 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 because that's what they're programmed with. And, you know, he, once he got awake, he, he stopped it, stopped it all completely. Okay, Danielle, back to you. Keep, keep going. We'll try not to interrupt (laughs) with such a big interruption, but it's kind of sets the stage.
4: No, I don't mind because I, I'm going to share something to relate to what everyone just shared. Um, When I, I did an Animus Ping commercial a couple years ago and everyone on set obviously had type 1, and every single person who had type 1 had some terrible thing that they went through, and this is in reference to your friend that developed an autoimmune disorder. I distinctly recall being incredibly ill from the flu shot, and then I began to not feel good, and I have been convinced my entire life that a vaccine is what caused my type 1, and my little brother incidentally got it when he was 15, And I'm convinced that it's epigenetics and environmental because the same families eat the same way. They go through the same things. They do the same, you know, they take the same vaccines. And um, but I mean, there was one person that had been stung by 200 bees. And so I've actually never really believed in even type one. And I have my own research that the medical industry sort of creates it with by administering hormone therapy because I've met other people that were diagnosed and they reversed it with diet. Three months later, their pancreas was working fine. So it goes through a trauma, and it begins to default. The beta cells begin to die, and they call it autoimmune, that are, that my immune system turned on the beta cells, and I just don't believe it. So anyway, um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor, and I learned very early on. I just listened to a, a podcast with Huberman, Andrew Huberman, I'm gonna pull it up really quickly to reference what he said. Doc, yeah, Jack Krauss and Andrew Huberman. So they were talking about they think that the information taught in medical school only 0.01% of it is actually correct. And what I'm learning about diet and lectins and fermented foods and when you should eat and how much is completely against everything I was ever taught. I'm I've, I'm 26 years into this insulin therapy game, and it took. What happened with covid and what the hospital did to me and trying to heal from that to then learn things about type one i i actually have have a good chance of my maybe reversing it the damage from the insulin therapy if wow. i can yeah i've met other people it's not impossible it's just there's no cure in the pharmaceutical but it is in god it exists in nature it exists in learning I'm gonna what I need to do is um I'm gonna do DNA tests with ancestry.com and 23andMe because even though they all go to the same lab in North America, there's about a 10% overlay gap missing. And then I'm gonna have my DNA analyzed for markers because I wanna know exactly how to heal my body. And it's obvious that I have a gluten sensitivity and things like that, but anyway. I'm just amazed at how little I knew before this journey and and how much I've learned I every day I just feel overwhelmed by what I don't know and what I want to know quickly so anyway um my mom rushed me to the Encino ER and the doctor had treated me before um I had been there a couple times over the last decade for diabetic ketoacidosis which is where your blood sugars are really high you're leaking ketones and you're not responding to your insulin, or for whatever reason, your blood sugars aren't coming down, or you're not able to stay very hydrated. Thank you, mom. She just brought my insulin. Um, And this time was different. So I tested positive for COVID. And they told me when they gave me Dilaudin, which I said, why, why would you give me Dilaudin? Because my ankle was hurting, but like I had broken bones where a shot of morphine would have been sufficient. And Dilaudin is much more uh powerful and it's a it's a it has a much higher neurotoxicity and they gave me so much Dilaudin then and there on the spot against all my questions because I don't do well on painkiller I get very nauseous like I'm the kind of person that when you get Vicodin after a surgery I don't take it and I just don't enjoy it and um especially it's hard on your liver it's it's just not you know and so I didn't know it had paralyzed my vagus nerve. And so, you know, they hadn't wanna, had me. I
1: want to just, walk, I want to stop here because of, yeah. I want Gail and Angela to comment about how can the doctors do this? You know, they, under the AMA Code of Ethics 2.1.1, they're supposed to provide informed consent. But this, what just happened, that that event is the typical situation. They seem to just be on a track and they are going to do whatever they want, no matter what. Because you said he did this over your objection.
4: Yeah, I wanted to know why Dilaudin and not something like morphine. Because, I mean, for me, I had only ever had morphine, I think, twice in my life. And I remember it was like, I mean, it. you're just immediately like you don't feel any pain anywhere.
1: So my, my simple view, but I want Gail and Angela to comment, my simple view is that is not the time to be nice and yeah. to say, doc, if you're going to do this, I'm stopping you right now. I'm moving to another hospital. I'm firing you and it's over because that is, that seems to be our only defense, but I, I, you know, I'm just a dad. That's all. I, my I, I was a DAD.
4: Yeah. I was assured into it, you know, like he reassured me it would be fine and it was safe. And I was like, okay, okay, you know. Um,
1: but they lie. So Gail and Angela, how, yeah. I mean, how how would somebody, how would this be stopped for somebody that's going through this? How would you stop it?
2: It's been confusing to, for me since the beginning of my career as a nurse, how we managed to give... Uh, patients who are in respiratory distress, medications like Dilaudid. Uh It was discouraged when I was in training in nursing school, while we were told that it was contraindicated. And it it's just been practice for the whole time I've been in the field. Uh, I definitely agree with you, Scott, that the only way to deal with this is to be very Uh, rude and assertive. (laughs) I mean, I guess not rude, but uh, assertive, directive, and insistent. Uh, And that really, I think, is going to be the answer in many of these circumstances. Uh, You know, we've just become really easily directed because we're raised to believe that medical practitioners are... know in a sense superior or they know better or uh, they they have the expertise to give us these guidances and i think what people really need to understand is that's not how we need to be engaging with these practitioners at this point at this point we can see very clearly that these systems are captured by the pharmaceutical industry, and they are being regulated on by three-letter agencies that are setting protocols that have our practitioners' arms tied. And unfortunately, the practitioners are too weak-minded to question the protocols and uh, step forward and do the right thing and uphold their oath. So it's going to be left to, uh, you know, strong, strong advocates and strong patience to stop these atrocities and demand uh, proper informed consent.
1: Angelo, do you have anything to add to what Gail said?
3: I, I do, I agree with Gail hundred percent. And just as a, maybe as a non-provider perspective, um, you know, as a child we're raised to, to hold doctors in the highest regard with the highest respect. And that's how I was as a child. Um, so, you know, you, you trust what the doctor says, you don't um, you don't ever question it. And I don't wanna say they're a higher authority, but they have education, they have the background, they have the experience. So as a patient, especially when you're in distress or you're ill, you just have trust in those doctors. And that's how I, you know, I think that's how the majority of us were raised and the, the the world we live in. As a provider, um, COVID, this, this whole pandemic completely woke me up to the fact that I wasn't giving my patients freedom of choice. And I, I deeply regret that now. But um, if patients came to me with concerns regarding fluoride or amalgam, um, or different things that they had concerns with, I um, I disregarded their concerns. And I, I feel terrible saying that, but I um, reflected on my education, which I held, uh, I was very proud of my education, I worked very hard um, to, to get where I am. And I never, ever doubted my education until COVID. Um, All of a sudden, I I question everything I was taught. Now, the interesting thing is um, providers like me who have been um, forced to stand up for what they believe in and stand up for medical freedom, most of us or a lot of us have left the industry. So what I'm afraid that the outcome of this is providers like me, nurses, doctors, who, who will stand up for their patients and who will give them a voice, they have been pushed out of the system. Um, So I think that that is just another uh, pitfall to this whole situation. Yeah,
2: I agree. I am one of them.
3: I've been pushed out
2: of the system and I refuse to return because uh, I cannot um, practice ethically. And I actually want to add one more thing on to what you said, Angela, because I think it's really profoundly important to understand. It's not that the practitioners... um, guidance should be completely disregarded, but patients need to understand how to demand uh, alternatives, uh, how to... So part of informed consent is that the doctors and practitioners are supposed to provide multiple options to the patient, and they're supposed to provide Uh, both the good outcomes and the adverse events of each of the options that they're presenting. And unfortunately, in this situation with COVID, we weren't given uh, those requirements of informed consent. And so really that's what we need patients to start demanding is all the options, the pros and cons of all the options The documentation to support the pros and cons of the information that they're being presented with, and then the allowance of the patient to choose the treatment that best suits their wishes.
1: Well, of course, I couldn't agree more. If I would have understood informed consent like I do now, Grace would be alive today. All right, Danielle, keep, keep going. You're doing a great job
4: so sad to hear that about Grace. Um, and you know I this begs the question Gail and Scott and Angela, even though you didn't um, comment again, the pros and cons of I mean how much do we even know about the pros or the cons we, without doing our own digging and research? It's not even available in that if, and a list would be nice. you know, and I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm just, it's, it's, I've really lived the medical industry and it's, I just fought really hard, you know? Um, I always felt like who could I be if I didn't have type one, if I didn't have to go through this. And that's been something my whole life. That's a very real truth for me. I don't always know what I'm available for. I just wake up and find out. And, and it's, It's not fair, given how much I, like if the endless counting and having to be awake every day for that 8 a.m. shot and all the the preparation and the maintaining the hydration and every single thing that goes in my mouth, I have a consequence for immediately somewhere. And nobody knew, you know, what diet I should be on. I I still don't know, not without a a DNA analysis. Um, So anyway... It ended up the long story short is because i'm not sure how much time we have but it happened then and there from the moment i got to the first er my life changed forever it took seven hospitals in three months and my mom can tell you she got COVID with me she moved into my apartment with me she slept on my couch we rotated the bed in the couch the heater was in the living room and we couldn't figure out why I was going home and I just couldn't stop vomiting and I was severely dehydrated and malnutrient deficient. My weight dropped from a healthy 140 pounds and I'm a fit 140 and I'm five foot seven. So, a lot of people with weight, it's, um, you know, muscle mass is, it weighs a lot. My visceral body fat around my center is still six, 7%. It's just, I'm just a lean person. And so I, I dropped from 140 pounds of lean muscle to 123. And I remember I looked in the mirror and I was like, I'm, I look like I'm dying. And right now I'm 126, but I I was so low this year I dropped down to 112 because gastroparesis, forgive me, the family cat is playing. Um, gastroparesis, um, it's an added layer to type 1 that that in the medical industry, just it's failing me. I'm now blind in my right eye and going blind in the left. And I'm getting a shot in my eye Friday and then laser in the other one two weeks later. And then two weeks later, we'll see what the other eye needs. But it's five weeks of having to be home at my mom's for her to take care of me no matter what. Um, But each hospital would just bring me in, admit me. They kept trying to give me COVID vaccines. They'd wrap me in a plastic room by then, I think.
1: Um, why did you why did you go from the first hospital to the second one?
4: Well, so that's a great question. I I think we were getting the treatment we needed at one hospital. Right. So it was like, well, that hospital obviously didn't know what they were doing. So we'll go to another one. But I also was just going to the most local ones. Um, at what, one point we went to Cedars-Sinai and that was one of the the more like they, they they're like, they put me in an ambulance and sent me all the way to downtown LA to the wrong hospital that my insurance didn't cover. And then it took me to Valley Presbyterian. It was like a three hour ambulance ride in the most acute agony, freezing cold, metal clanking everywhere, like miserable experience, (laughs) you know? And it's like, Um, because having type 1 diabetes and having a pre-existing condition ever since Obamacare, I automatically get my basic needs met through Medi-Cal. But I've done PPO, and it makes almost no difference in the quality of care and what's available. So it makes more sense for me to be on Medi-Cal. And so um, finally, my mom drove me all the way out to Thousand Oaks to Los Robles, and they were the seventh hospital in three months, um they did a uh, they put me under and they did a test and diagnosed the gastroparesis but what's amazing is they immediately started offering me like insured drinks and this fatty coffee cake and all the things that somebody with gastroparesis cannot have and i really believe i should have been in the hospital longer but i had my mom check me out as soon as possible so that i could get home and get the right foods like I was literally getting poisoned by the hospital when I needed to be there, you know?
1: Yeah, there's a piece of this that I want to go on a rabbit trail with. So yeah. we, we checked out of the medical insurance game, I don't know how many years ago now, three sure. or four years ago. Um, Grace was on Medicaid, and I think that that is part of the problem because, yeah. you know, there. are They're trying to kill the population on Medicare and Medicaid first under the guise that they're the most expensive, they're producing the least for society and they're the most expensive. But, you know, outside of that, we are programmed, like you just said, well, my insurance wouldn't pay for this hospital. So that becomes part of our programming. We are steered by what our insurance will pay versus what should happen. And you know, so then that's why we decided to check out. So we're not—we don't have any insurance anymore because, you know, it doesn't make sense. If I'm going to be influenced by what my insurance company is going to pay, and they're in bed with big pharma, who's in bed with the government trying to kill me, it really doesn't make any sense to have medical insurance.
2: Yeah, and the overhead is so high. My family—it's uh, my husband and I, and we have two kids. Our, his employer was paying twelve hundred dollars a month. Wow! I, we were paying eight hundred out of pocket, and each family member had a three thousand dollar annual deductible before care could be covered outside of that. So it's just the whole, the whole insurance and and hospital and protocol. Because I mean that's part of it too. Uh, I mean the hospitals who accept medicaid and medicare and medicaid they get higher payouts from the government for diagnosing people with covid and giving them these treatment protocols and you know more of their stay is covered so you know it's all of these all of these handshakes and nods in these industries which we are we are monetizing human life This is where the atrocities become so overwhelming that this system, in my opinion, needs to be turned and walked away from. I love what Angela said about, or I think maybe it was you, Scott, that it was one of you, that a very small percentage of our medical training is actually accurate. I mean, that's because medical schools are captured and, you know, we're not going to be able to fix this with just, you know, changing a few things here and there. Uh, you know, this is the, the atrocities that have been uh, discovered throughout um, the revelation of, of the COVID pandemic in the healthcare industry ha- have led me to believe that the only answer is to turn and rebuild parallel infrastructure.
6: Yeah. yeah.
1: I agree with that. I'll just tell you a quick a quick example of how much money is involved here. So I developed or I found out I had heart disease six years ago, so I get my blood tested. Well, I had been doing blood tests through on my own. And the last time I had a blood test, it was through LabCorp. Uh, they charge $500 for the whole. I, I get about 50 parameters tested. And so then we checked out of the system went to a clinic that's not in the system and they happened to have labcorp as a service there so i thought oh this is great so then i went into that clinic got labcorp to do a draw but then they don't they didn't bill through that clinic they billed directly and they sent me a bill so the prior time same same set of labs other than i got a d dimer and one other test a, a blood type test and a d dimer And the prior time, the labs cost $500. They sent me a bill for 3,300 for the labs. (laughs) And so then when I called, they said, Hey, I'm not paying this. Yeah. I said, this is ridiculous. I showed you guys are the same company. Here's the test I had last last time. And they wrote it down to 700. So that just gives you a perspective as to what is going on. If I would have had conventional insurance and the doctor signed off on those tests, that, I mean, oh, you know.
2: We spend more money in the United States on healthcare care than the top three other first world countries combined. And we have the uh, youngest mortality rate in the world. And we have the highest amount of obesity and the highest level of chronic disease. What does that tell us about the medical system in this country? That
3: speaks volume to
1: me. I I think it's right on. Angela, did you have a comment before we go back to Danielle?
3: No, I I, I do appreciate what um, the idea that we need a new system. We need medical care providers to to maybe go back in time a bit to where when I was a kid, there was a, a doctor that you know, hung his own shingle um, downtown and treated very independently. They weren't mandated um, by the hospital system. Um, you know, one thing that I found very alarming um, was, you know, I live in a very small town. All the doctors have now left private practice. They all work for a hospital of some sort. I have a um, legitimate medic, underlying medical um, that prevented me from taking the jab. My, my primary care provider, was prohibited from signing my medical exemption. They would lose their job. That's how they pay their bills. They are being dictated. So, and my, I, I believe my primary care provider, one hundred percent, agreed with my reasoning. So, the the system is it's been corrupted, um, which we all know. But it, it, we need to to break it into a million pieces and start over because it, it just is not working. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The same thing happened to me, Angela. Uh, I, uh, I experienced an extraordinary, uh, mask reaction, uh, right after the mandate of masks and starting in uh, April of 2020. And I could not this, so my entire face, I'll send you guys the photo was covered in boils and I could not get a doctor to write me a mask exemption. Because yep, they,
3: their licenses were were bound by the yeah. protocols, yeah, yeah. I am. Um, I'm a as a general dentist. I you know, the the oral cavity is my specialty, and there's a tremendous amount of contraindications to mask wearing. Um, so at our local school, at uh, you know, there are a couple of local children who were having adverse reactions. So I evaluated them and, and wrote mask exemptions. Well, after those were submitted, the school changed their policy to it had to be an MD or a DO, not a DDS. Um, you know, not a dentist where they would accept those letters from. So what do you do? That's
1: insane. All right, Danielle, back to back to you. <laughs>
4: um, yeah, um, I had I would I had quoted the um, the podcast with Andrew Huberman and Jack Krauss, who they're the ones saying that point percent of what's taught in medical schools is accurate. Um, and Things like that. Um, I had a friend of mine send me a two part, four hours each, their podcast that they did. And it was so, it was like a reset button on my entire understanding of myself. It's still, um, I've I've now undergone 12 rounds of ozone. Um, and since contracting not contracting, since my vagus nerve was paralyzed and my weight dropped and it's been very hard because my body's not absorbing nutrients the same and I am not able to work out the same and my blood sugars are not the same. And three years ago, I had no signs of diabetic retinopathy. So to be totally blind in this eye and be told that this one too, and it's really um, disheartening. Um, I've had a GoFundMe, at this point, I'm totally unable to take care of myself or work, and so the GoFundMe is it, its what paid for all of the ozones. I had three rounds of stem cells, and it's hard to say if they helped or not because this year I was so sick that I called my mom from Mexico. I had gone there because that was the most affordable stem cell clinic that I could find, and. I said you gotta get the dog i don't think i have a week left and i said mom i'm not going to survive another relapse because something would trigger this relapse where two to three weeks would go by where i cannot stop vomiting and when i say i cannot stop i'm talking about like not a moment's rest i'm talking about 24 hours a day i have videos where my lips are blistered from the bile being so acidic and so to be home and hydrated and have my weight at 126 feels like an answer to a prayer. I cannot tell you because I'm not alone. I have my whole family making sure that I'm hydrated, making sure that my blood sugars are good, making sure the dog is getting taken out. Like my mom is handling almost every conversation I'm having with my doctors. You know, I'm not even the one engaging anymore. And it's it's really um I don't know. Like, I just don't know what the future holds for me because the medical system, all they've said is you have this the rest of your life and these are the medications that we want you to be on. And um, I was doing biocharger sessions, which is an an electromagnetic frequency machine. It has all four frequencies of nature. And these are the machines they were using in those holistic schools that got shut down by Carnegie and Rockefeller. These are the medicines that are thousands of years old. And so um i also found what's called a therolite bed it's something i and initially i was interested in the light stem bed because it infuses all the mitochondria with red light but this is much more advanced um and i have yet to try one of their sessions but my goal with every medical treatment is just to i want to bring back to life my vagus nerve to heal my gut microbiome but these are things that hospitals and doctors do not talk about. These are all considered alternative and holistic medicine. And guess what? They're the only things that are working to heal me.
2: Correct. And the medical industry won't do research on them because pharma won't fund them because the agency is captured. And this is really why I wanted to come back to parallel healthcare infrastructure. Because it, so I, when I was fired in October of 2020, uh, one for refusing these shots. I had experienced so much trauma in the hospital setting uh, because of what uh, witnessing what your th- people like your daughter went through, Scott. Uh, I had PTSD. Uh, I was engaged in things that were uh, so um, so atrocious, and you know, it's interesting. I think back on those moments, and I and I look at my colleagues, and I wonder, you know how is it that god gave me the eyes to see and the ears to hear and um you know i really think that that a lot of this comes back to um you know faith and courage and ethics uh i have always been a courageous person and uh, i think that that danielle and angela would agree that you know that's really what has come forward here is that the courageous practitioners and the courageous patients uh, are coming forward to shine the light and show others how to be courageous because it's been my experience that, uh, I'm, I'm partnered with Dr. Christian Northrup and she told me something very profound that I take with me every day. She said, hopelessness, helplessness and despair are the tools of, of the devil. And they capture practitioners and they prevent us uh, you know, we feel that we're bound by our paycheck, and that our identity revolves around our profession, and and our prestige in what we do, and our, you know, I mean, we, I've I've had 15 or 20 years of dedication, you know, and Angela can say the same thing, if not more, to this field, and we build these identities around where where we are uh, in our profession, that that in a sense. You know, they block us from being able to make these hard ethical decisions. And uh, that's really what I saw uh, uh, to address. You know, how does this happen with these practitioners? Uh, there's just so much fear of losing their jobs, losing their, their um they're standing in the community. It's interesting. I kind of, I kind of like take it back to high school. This is kind of what I what I experienced in the hospital. It was almost like high school again. It was like, well, everybody's going along, so we'd better go along so that we can fit in. And that's something that I really want to draw back to, you know, this is going to start with our children and re-educating them to really understand their their capacity and and become independent uh in in understanding that uh you know we all really need to make hard decisions sometimes and so i mean i think i think ultimately the medical system i'm hoping that when we do design this parallel infrastructure we can begin the process before before anyone can even be considered as a candidate for medical school or or teaching children, you know, they have to go through a six-month training in, in morals and ethics, and they have to sit for exams. And, you know, there's some kind of committee of, of experts, uh, of, of, of elders, of some sort of, you know, leaders in, in morals to, to oversee these kinds of... Uh, developmental programs to safeguard our practitioners, um, you know, ability to to exercise courage under under fear.
1: Well, I think that's I think that's spot on. I mean, the, if they are in theory following the Hippocratic Oath, but they've been programmed as to what harm now looks like, do no harm, right? That's the short version that everybody sold. But if do no harm has been programmed differently in today's environment, it really doesn't matter anymore, does it? We have to start over from round zero. Uh, You know, Angela, the thing that I was super impressed with what you said is your pride did not get in the way of looking historically when you said, Mm -hmm. my gosh, I didn't give my patients freedom of choice. You know, that is... That is the single most important um, issue with anybody that's in the medical profession. If your pride doesn't allow you to do what's right, um, how can you be in that profession?
3: Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of conversations with um, people who know my situation locally and they said, why are you different? Or, and I said, I, it was, it was a pride thing. I think it's an ego thing. And so many physicians too, they're, they're proud of their achievements. You know, they, they got a 4.0 GPA and they got to, to medical school. And um, if you can't swallow that pride and admit you were wrong, there, there's not a whole lot of, of getting out of this situation. Um, I know the, the a lot of the point of this podcast is to, how do we um, survive this medical system? Um, Gail, you talked about the popularity, uh, you know the situation in a hospital where if one person does it, everybody does it. One thing that I did locally when this happened, when the mandate came down was I, I basically raised my hands that I'm not doing it. And I was very vocal about it. The support from my coworkers was incredible. People came out of the woodwork. I think at the time we had 700 employees, give or take um, at our facility, 250 were not vaccinated. So we, we banded together. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of them didn't make it through the whole um, uh, persecution. A lot of them caved and did take the vac- the, the jab under duress. Um, a lot of them left the hospital. But I think that camaraderie, and so, again, if somebody's in my situation, or it, stand up. It, it does take tremendous courage, but stand up, and there are others out there, and know that it if you just shine a little light, they, they will come towards you. Um, and if you're still alone, well, then you're still alone. But I, I don't think that would be the situation in, in most cases. And again, nobody's ever done this before. This is never, at least for me, I've never had to do anything like this before. So it was a bit of a learning curve and just, well, I, I feel like I should say something, so I'm going to say something.
1: That's uh, That's fantastic. So Danielle, have you done anything as far as challenging the doctor who destroyed your vagus nerve? I mean, does he know he did this? Or what is the status there? You
4: know, my pride, because I am a health and wellness coach, <laughs> really believed that I could heal my body on my own. I practice Jodas Benza's breath work and I pray and I meditate and I commune and I fast. And deep down, from the bottom of my heart, I believed through prayer, I would heal. A lot of, when I, when I messaged my pastors in San Antonio, Texas, the link to my GoFundMe and a couple other spiritual coaches, you know what I was told? God heals all. Takes a little extra sometimes, you know? So I'm only now looking into retroactively finding a way to hold that doctor accountable i'm not sure you know it's seven hospitals sending me home six of them sending me home without being diagnosed with gastro and then going home and almost dying where did the malpractice begin and when did it end because it just seems to me like a lot of it was not okay from an ethical standpoint and moral and I just remember being alone in these rooms wrapped in plastic no one comes you know understaffed except for like the last hospital and i also just thought you know did he know the risks like didn't shouldn't he have like like looking back it, it's so obvious delauden would do that it almost seems anybody would know and i've now read about it doing this to a lot of people especially if your pre-existing health condition is there and you know, um, so I'm only now I'm only now looking into it now that I feel that I I just don't have the resources it takes to get better. You know, I I um the GoFundMe, my fa- friends and family literally saved my life, but it's not enough to carry me through to healing what, what I believe it could be healed, but with the right alternative treatments. Um, you know, I, I'm not able to just go to the 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 TheraLight bed and go get sessions every day. It's especially here in LA. And I tried seven ways from Sunday to get the founder of LightStim to loan me a bed because I heard he loaned it to NBA players, and he just kind of just kind of didn't respond. But he did say I'm welcome to drive out to the factory in Irvine and use it every day. But I don't have four hours of gasoline in my back pocket every day either. So. You know, and he's like, oh, you can buy a used one for 30,000. And I'm like, but when is your that's your commercial bed? Like, when does the private one come out? He told me he was developing it like two years ago. So, you know, um, I I, I now feel obligated to hold that doctor accountable. Actually, I've had a huge change of heart in these last two and a half years where I'm not willing to remain silent in my knowledge. I have a lot of knowledge to offer people in healing their bodies <laughs> and um, and different, you know, methodologies that they can use, such as the Theralite bed or cryotherapy or, you know, there's many different types of things that do different things. And I think they all need to be integrated. Like, a, like if I could just have a big center of holistic healing with a room for every treatment and people could just go in and. do all of them (laughs) i've done apparently i've done more intravenous ketamine than anyone in the fda and i gotta tell you it was by coincidence that i did that after i got covid but it helped my pain levels so much because i'm almost always chronically inflamed in some way now and i'm almost always having some kind of a a discomfort or a nausea and I've just learned to live with it and find the blessings. Like this has given me such a deeper connection to myself and others, because by learning to live with the pain and, and accept it and and move through how distracting it can be, I'm able to get out of it by hyper-focusing on service to others. You know, we're not
5: alone.
1: I, I know Dr. Margaret Aranda quite well, and she was in bed for 12 years. Uh, from a car accident, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it was still somebody else's fault. But uh, it's it's interesting how how she came out of that, and it seems like you're going through that process. It's very impressive, Danielle, to, to hear that. By the way, anybody listening that or watching that wants to help Danielle, her GoFundMe will be in the show notes, mm-hmm. and so you can click on and and help as as God leads you. Um, God. For holding doctors accountable, I. And, and nurses, it, you, it's a strange thing. I mean, it, most people are aware that we filed the first of its kind lawsuit in Grace's murder, and you know we'll see where it goes. We have a hearing July 14th, but I'm not encouraging people to file a lawsuit. We felt God leading us in that direction, but the, the cabal had set up the network of state laws that really preclude us and anybody from filing a lawsuit. Uh, you know, it is, it's near impossible before COVID. I mean, obviously the three of, you know, medical malpractice was the third leading cause of death in the United States. And I'm not going to call it medical malpractice. What it is, is it's medical murder. Medical murder has become something that's acceptable in our society. And with COVID, of course, it's now number one, because there was 1.2 million Americans murdered in hospitals in the 39 month COVID era. And so that put the, the uh, you know, ahead of cancer and heart disease, um, medical murder is now number one in, the, in, in what kills people in the United States and it's acceptable. I, I can't wrap my head around that, but you know, now that I understand it, I, I, I can't get on enough programs to talk about it. So Danielle, I, I wanna have everybody give their, their thoughts to wrap things up. What are I want you to lead that Danielle and then we'll have Gail and Angela comment and then I'll I'll go to some closing comments that I have
4: Sure Um what what would you like me to focus on for you Scott?
1: That's that's up to you. What do you want uh, to focus on relative um, to your journey?
4: Yeah, I you know one of the things I I this year was really truly I can't imagine 12 years in a bed, but it was like 6 months of and there's videos of it on my social because I started opening up. Um, you know, I I couldn't understand I, I, how how this could happen, and then I started feeling this these these shocks of these waves of shock at the things I was learning and how like easily fixable some of this was, and so I would just encourage people. To, to make sure you have a strong foundation within to really listen to yourself and listen to your intuition and really and really hold fast in who you are and what your body and your mind and your heart is telling you no matter what the wall of doctors and insurance companies and pharmaceuticals are pushing onto you. Joe Rogan, I'm so happy you guys mentioned him, just, just played a video of all these different media clips from all over the country saying the exact same thing. It sounded like a voiceover of thousands of people reading the same script. And so I would encourage people, don't get down conspiracy theorists, rabbit holes, conserve your energy for what serves you, what serves your highest self. But, you know, my biggest thing now is to be gentle and have compassion and grace for myself and recognize that others may not realize what they're doing. And it's my job to protect myself by listening to what, is right for me like now if i could go back in time i wish i had insisted on morphine and not dilaudin i just wish because i did bring it up i remember the conversation and his face like it was yesterday you know and i remember watching it go in and i i remember thinking god that looks like the shot of death and boy was it and i and just like you with with grace and i'm not you know i did i it mine was a, a longer slower burn because i'm a fighter i'm a health coach my many doctors have said anyone else would have been dead i was just so strong i'm a bodybuilder you know i'm an endurance athlete i live for sweating and breathing and it's like sensory integration for me my whole family's on the spectrum the autism spectrum we're all very sensitive you know so i would just encourage people just trust yourself you don't have to villainize the people around you you can live and lead with love in your heart but really really be a warrior. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's the people who are strong enough and are capable and they refrain, they're not the weak, so.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's that, that comment about your intuition. So what I relive, what you're reliving is that if you would have just stood your ground and what I relive with Grace's death was when I was taken out of the hospital by an armed guard, why didn't I take her with me?
4: I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: so you relive those things and you know, you you share it so other people don't have to follow in those footsteps. So uh, thank you for sharing that, Danielle. Gail, you're next. Go ahead. What is your wrap-up comment?
2: My wrap-up comment would definitely oh. be words of encouragement. Uh, I, I think that it's very easy to just convince yourself to do nothing. And we need practitioners and patients to just do something, even it's even if it's something small, do something. In um, that note, you know, I'm gathering expert witness testimony with StandFirmNow.org. Uh, we're trying to arm every litigating, um, Victim and attorney, you know, an attorney in the in the world. Ultimately, uh, by by creating um, an overwhelming amount of expert witness testimony that can't be disputed. So that's my my way of taking action. Um, it with regards to supporting people who are in these terrible situations. I'm not sure if you've mentioned these organizations before, but uh, American frontline nurses and remnant nursing. Those are two organizations in the United States that people can contact if they need resources. If you are, you know, you are a family member is in the hospital and you feel like you're being abused or you're concerned about overreach, uh, reach out to one of those organizations. They have staff ready to assist. And, I'm just excited uh, because I feel that, you know, this is an opportunity, COVID has given us an opportunity to to really rediscover what is important in life and what we're capable of. And uh, with enough people, with more people coming forward and, and just doing a little bit, we have the potential to make big differences and big changes. So thanks for doing your part, Scott, in having this show. And I'm excited uh, to see what the future holds for the medical care system.
1: A couple of comments on what you said, Gail, it's right on the two organizations you, you referenced I'm familiar with and I agree 100%. We have on Grace's website, we have a hospital rescue tab. For those of you who go to that, our site, you can see that and there's forms, there's a hospital hostage hotline. And then in the resource tab we have an organization that set up an infrastructure, it's called the wedge. So people who are checking out of the medical system can spotlight their uh, profession and their offices. So then that's a network that's starting around the entire country. If you're in Wisconsin, we have some Wisconsin links for clinics that have checked out already. So, I mean, it's happening, you know, it's slow, but sure. The thing that I, I would say most important what Gail just said is COVID opened our eyes and because it opened our eyes, the cabal is doing an absolutely brilliant job of convincing people to move on and we can't move on. No. That's what they're doing. That's why Congress on, on April 10th passed the law that COVID is over. I mean, that, how insane is that? But they did that because they want to convince the zombies to turn the, the page, turn, close the book, COVID's over, we can move on with our life. No, 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 we can't. That's why People we got to- People are still
4: getting you know, COVID.
1: <laughs> say that again, Danielle?
4: People are still getting COVID. What do they mean it's over? <laughs>
1: like. <laughs> I mean, they, they want to, yeah. I mean, it, it's just part of the agenda. All right, yeah. Angela, go ahead.
3: Yes, well, and I, I think you're spot on there. Um, one thing I've learned is we all have to be our own advocate here and this is more from a patient perspective it takes bravery it's really hard as we all know to speak up for yourself especially when you're speaking to a medical professional be your own advocate when you go into any sort of health situation whether it be a dental office or um, your hospital or your primary care provider. And if you're not comfortable doing that, bring somebody with you and prepare them. Like I brought my husband with me when I had, when I was going through childbirth, I said, I won't, I know I'm too weak minded at points. Like you need to speak up for me. And that was a huge tool for me. Like bring somebody with you if you know you might not have that in you. Um, And then when you are uh, facing that moment where you are afraid, pray, "Um, God got me through this. And he has blessed us all with the courage to stand up against this. And I know it's petrifying and it can be paralyzing, but God gave us all the courage to do what we're doing and just pray and you will find it. And that, that got me through all of this. And I'm I'm going to pray for all of you, um, Scott and Danielle and Gail, and thank you all for doing what you're doing.
1: Boy, did you hit the nail on the head, Angela, fear. Fear is the reason that my daughter Grace is not here. I had, been influenced by the propaganda. God did not give us a spirit of fear. Every time we have fear outside of, you know, the fear to run, you know, there's a bear, so I'm, I'm going to run from the bear, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fear that overtakes your decision making, your critical thinking. God did not give us the spirit of fear that's from Satan. And, yep. um, That's that's huge. Thank you for that. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go into uh, Don's going to play one longer clip yet. It's part of my closing. It's very important clip because there what it does is exposes what's going on in hospital settings today. This is just from last week and this will shock you. This was on NBC News. I don't watch NBC News, but this clip, it's a four minute clip is what's happening in the largest hospital system in the United States. And what a shock that the mainstream media is exposing this different way to kill people. So I'm going to have Don play that, uh, and then I'll wrap up, and then we'll come back to say goodbye. All right? So when I have Don play this clip, the introduction, I just gave the introduction, but I want to have everybody understand the reason we are in this is we have made the medical profession an idol. And because we made it an idol is the why behind we are in this. We let it happen. So the medical industrial complex of course is guilty, but we also all let it happen. I let it happen myself personally, because I would say I was a lazy Christian before I'm awake and I'm awake now, I'm not lazy anymore. And the only way to stop this is to realize in fact, that's what's happened. So Don, can you go ahead and play the four minute clip please?
5: Marisol Perez had a virulent case of COVID and pneumonia when she arrived at this HCA hospital in 2021. She was just 42 years old.
3: I kept getting moved from room
4: to room. The rooms got smaller and smaller. The last room I was in, that's that's where the worst of it was. I could feel myself
5: dying. Doctors put her on a ventilator and into a coma, But after kidney failure and a series of mini strokes common in COVID, about a month after her admission, staff began urging her mother, Alma Salas, to transfer her daughter to end-of-life care and let her die. I felt like he was trying to pressure me. Hey, do you really want to live your life taking care of your daughter in a vegetative state for the next 30 years?
2: I just looked at him and I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm I'm not going to let her
5: go. Another time, she says, six or seven HCA staff members gathered at her daughter's bedside, urging her to end her treatment. One nurse, Alice says, was very aggressive and came in repeatedly. She got really angry. I was like taken aback. The pressure Salas describes exists at some of HCA's other 170 plus hospitals. Staff are pressed to get patients into hospice where life-saving treatments are withdrawn and the incentive is not necessarily patient care but the improvement of hospital performance metrics. This according to six nurses and 27 doctors who've practiced at 16 HCA facilities in seven states and who spoke to NBC News. Because if a patient dies in hospice, even in the same hospital bed, their death will not be counted in the hospital's mortality statistics, a key factor used by those who rate hospital quality. And the better the rating, the better for business.
6: I'm not afraid of speaking up in what I believe.
5: Dr. Ghassan Tabel practices at an HCA hospital in Southern California. He was the only physician of the 27 doctors we talked to who agreed to go on camera. Dr. Tobel says HCA is constantly pushing doctors to reduce the time they keep their patients in the hospital and threatening to punish those like him who don't conform with the loss of their hospital privileges. In fact, he sued the hospital about this issue and the hospital settled for an undisclosed amount in 2019. Why would the hospital care about that?
6: There are financial reasons. of stay is central to their business.
5: Length of stay is critical because when insurance runs out, hospitals have to pick up the tab. So moving patients home or to hospice opens up a paying bed faster.
6: I met with administrative uh, personnel and they said, regardless of the reasons, I have to find a way to lower these numbers.
5: Are you saying they really didn't want to hear about exceptions?
6: They would superficially ask me why, but didn't seem to be interested. (laughs) in the real reasons.
5: The 26 other physicians we spoke with agree.
6: People can stop their care at any time, but to coerce somebody, to force somebody to do something, you're breaking many boundaries, crossing many lines, and, and, and that's what I would have strong objections to.
5: It is critical, he says, that families and patients understand the consequences of going into hospice.
6: When you deny care that is life-saving, that, I mean, basically took
5: away life. Hospice care is appropriate in many cases and is being used more and more, but the growth rate of hospice transfers at HCA facilities is roughly double the national average. Were you aware that the compensation that the head of HCA receives, Sam Hazen, is tied to keeping the death rates low at his hospitals? Wow. No. I had no idea.
1: When I listened to this, uh, so a friend sent it last week. This was on NBC News uh, on the 20th of June, just last week. I was shocked. I knew this stuff was happening, but to see it in mainstream media was a shock. And I was glad to, I was actually glad to see it because we need to wake people up. You know, a long time ago, so this is maybe 30 years ago when I knew, that I was one of God's, I was listening to a pastor. And when these type of things come up, so when you listen to what we talked about today, I'm guessing you will want to be prepared. And he said, there's two mistakes you can make relative to any preparation. The first one is failure to prepare. So obvious there's things that you should be doing. The more important thing is the second mistake is relying on your preparations. We rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if we are serious about relying on Jesus Christ, that means our first step is repentance. And what, what does everyone need to repent on? We have an incurable desire to rely on men to fix things instead of God, and that never works. And that's why we're in the mess that we are in. Uh, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day so that whoever believes in him will be reconciled with the Father and have eternal life. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. So we do have a responsibility to prepare, but we cannot rely on the preparations. Don, can you bring up the, you mess with the wrong girl picture? I, I'd like to Show this when I can. We have these posters that are we use when we're doing rallies for Grace, and we we rely on Genesis 50:20 is what we're standing firm on. I'm going to read it. Uh, Genesis 50:20 was uh, written with the story of Joseph, and you know, Joseph went through a lot of a lot of pain, but he stood on solid ground with God. And Genesis 50:20 says, "You intended to harm me." But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And all four of us today are in that boat. We want to be used by God to save many lives. God's still on the throne. Uh, It might look like Satan is winning, but we know the victory belongs to the Lord. Instead of having the ladies give the final word, we already did a wrap-up. I'm going to have Don play a short clip from Attorney Warner Mendenhall. Uh, Warner is the attorney in the Brooke Jackson case. Brooke Jackson filed the False Claims Act against Pfizer. That proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that this uh, jab was never a vaccine. It was a prototype uh, under a contract with the Department of Defense. Uh, Warner's team is working on Grace's legal case and helping us prepare for the lawsuit, which we have our first hearing on July 14th. And Warner calls a spade a spade in this one-minute clip. So after this is done, I'll have Don bring us all back to say goodbye.
7: There are situations that we have seen that I believe deserve prosecution for murder. And, and we will be working. Uh, we, these are obviously fairly extreme, and we have to have very good evidence before a prosecutor will step up. But there are cases where we now believe there are healthcare personnel who murdered their patients. And, and when we know of those situations, we are trying to get the medical records, get the evidence accumulated, get the recordings. Sometimes the families have taken recordings that show that this is murder. So we do have some criminal uh, aspects to this. And I think just convicting or even bringing charges against some doctors and even hospital systems for murder uh, will shift the chemistry of this and, and put the fear of God uh, back in uh, to the white coats who have led us astray in this process. Remember,
1: Danielle's Gifts and Go will be in the show notes, so please scroll down and see and link to the Gifts and Go in the show notes. And ladies, thank you very, very much for coming on today. This was really a gift. Thank you for
3: having us. Likewise. Thank you.